At the beginning of the year, I released an episode called Setting the Intention. And one of the things I talked about in that episode was how I wanted to make some changes to my shows, both in who I approach to record with and in how I actually go about producing and editing the episodes. For example, using music and sound effects to enhance the ambience or atmosphere of an episode when it's appropriate and serves the story. And the first person I met on the back of all of that was Jack Lowe. And I really can't even tell you where I first heard his name or saw photos from his Lifeboat Station project. Most likely it was something that popped up on Twitter, which over the past several months has become a terrific way for me to discover new work and connect with interesting people. Regardless, once I dove into a bit of Jack's work, I knew I wanted to talk to him. Now, whenever someone agrees to record a conversation with me, the process begins with a phone call. Just to say hello and brainstorm what we might actually talk about when we record. And these conversations are typically pretty short, maybe 15, 20 minutes or so. Some go a little longer if we really click and get into a groove, but the vast majority of them are less than a half hour. Jack was a little different. Our initial touch-based conversation lasted about two hours, and we really didn't even talk much about photography. It was more like catching up with someone I've known for years but hadn't spoken to for a while. When we did actually hit record, we ended up with so much great conversation that I've decided to release it in two parts. We got on well from the jump, and both of us are fans of the rabbit holes, so don't be surprised if more conversations with Jack happen in the future. My name's Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is my first conversation with Jack Lowe. Please listen carefully. Well, I started um, a project, sorry, I didn't start the project myself. I learned of a project called Ambient Isolation um, last March and April time um, when we had our first lockdown here in the UK. And uh, it's run by a guy called Al Circuit, S-I-R-K-E-T-T, um, and he's Ambient ISO on Twitter. And he, he decided to um, pull together all the field recordists um, that, you know, that were on Twitter, any that he could. Uh, to record a dawn chorus on the 25th of April last year. So people across the globe on the 25th of April last year, it's amazing how I pulled it all together, um, recorded the dawn chorus. Um, and because of the difference in time zones, of course, what they did is they took a, a, a slice of each dawn chorus chronologically as the, as the earth rotated. You know, so when they wow. when they put together the final piece, so you gradually heard this. It's as if the the Earth was rotating. Wow! While while you were hearing the dawn chorus, um, you can hear the final piece on the Ambient Isolation website, and I've also got it in a playlist on my SoundCloud. Fantastic! Called, called Dawn Chorus. Um, anyway, so Matt, and I think you might have called him George because I, his middle name's George. Right, um, right, right. So 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 he's Matt George Tucky, Matthew George Tucky. Right. Um, he lives just across the way from me. Um, within the same city here in northeast England, um, Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, but we've become friends through the audio world here in Newcastle. Um, you know, it's just like one of those things that one 
connection leads to another. Sure. Um, and so then he got onto the ambient isolation thing as well, and he recorded part of that Dawn Chorus as well. So that's why you've ended up going down on that uh, that rabbit hole. And because then the, the, the finished piece ended up being picked up by tone benders. Oh, I think... Uh, ah, okay. So there's the connection there. So there's the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was so proud, really chuffed, that my piece, um, one of my one of my audio recordings, ended up playing out the show. So when you listen right to the end of that particular edition, you'll hear my wow. clap for clap for carers piece. Do you know about clap for carers in the US? No, no. Um, we had a, a period of ten weeks here uh, when the world turned upside down. Um, <laughs> we we Way were back so. In oh, I know, I know. Um, we had this. We, we were all, you know, as a people, we, were, we felt very aware that there was this front line of the NHS mm-hmm. workers, the, the healthcare workers. And on a Thursday evening at eight o'clock, we all used to come out of our houses and stand on our doorsteps and we used to clap. I remember uh, seeing that. I remember reading mm, about it online. Yeah. And so I recorded the fifth one in our neighbourhood. Wow. So as it turned out, the, the halfway point. And the name I called it at the time is like a perfect symphony because it was exactly five minutes long. Mm. And I didn't do anything. I didn't cut it anything. Um, I just let the recording run for that five minutes. And you can hear the, it starts with um, the birds chirruping. And then you hear a single clap from one of our neighbours. Because I had the, I set the microphones up in the the garden. Um, And you can hear the single clap and it grows and grows and grows until you can hear thousands. If you listen carefully, you can hear thousands of people in the, in the whole city clapping on their doorsteps. I mean, it's just my, you know, the hairs on my arms are standing up just thinking about it because it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. Um, and so tone benders picked this all up, you see, um, and uh, they ended up talking about dawn chorus and ambient isolation. And then my clap for carers recording played out the show. And what a what a wonderful thing the internet is when it's a wonderful thing. about a minute of the full five-minute Don Chorus piece, but I wanted to include a bit of it to give you an idea of just how important audio is to Jack. Not just how it can be used in a particular project, but how integral audio is to how he experiences the world. I'll put a link to the full piece in the show notes. Now back to the conversation. So not to put too fine a point on it, you are, you are a photographer... But if the photography had to go away, 
could you be equally happy with audio as your main expression? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I don't know if... I, I, I'm not expecting you by any means to read every word I ever write online, but um, did <laughs> you happen have. to see... A, <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know. Uh, um, I too want to be acknowledged. <laughs> um, I, I tweeted something yesterday that's popped into my head that I've been thinking about. It's something I've come to do naturally over the last year or so. Um, and it started this wonderful discussion um, about how how you refer to yourself as a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tweeted that I use the word documentarist yes. to, dis- to describe myself these days. Which I kind of love, and I'd, I'd like to get into that. Well, I'll look forward to that, because that's been a really interesting topic that's been introduced to me by um, an amazing, amazing documentarist uh, called Daniel Meadows. Um, Who you mentioned yesterday in a tweet I saw. Uh, that. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the term documentarist you see, Jack, was... I do read everything. <laughs> you have, yeah. And that's all in that one tweet. So that, that's, um, that's a good value tweet, isn't it? It is. I got a lot of mileage <laughs> out of that. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, D- Daniel is somebody I've known about for a long time. Um, I mean, he's... He's just had his 69th birthday um, oh. and he's a, a, a living legend um, who is particularly famous for some work he made in 1974 in the free photographic omnibus. And that was a double-decker bus that he purchased and turned into his mobile darkroom and he used to live in it as well while he travelled around, um, I'm just going to say England, but... I don't, you know, I could be wrong. It may be the UK, but I think it was England. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would photograph people um, and tell them that he was going to put them in the history books. That was his reason for doing it. He right. needed to document document life. Um, and he would uh, make the photographs during the day, and then overnight he'd process the film in his free photographic omnibus and arrange for those people to come back and see him the next day, and he'd give them all prints. Free wow. of charge, you give, give them wow. prints. And have um, a conversation about them? Is that is that where, where the audio kind of fits in? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So he'd also, you know, when the opportunity arose, he would also um, record an interview with them uh, or a, a, a discussion, not not even an interview as such. It's like, you know, quickly press the record button and, and see where this takes us. Right. Um, and I'm like that with audio as well, in that I don't record everything. I only do it when the situation arises, you know, when... when I've been making photographs all day long at a particular lifeboat station, for example, and and I might have just had my ears pricked by a, a person who's got a, you can tell that they're going to be full of stories, or or there's a particular instance that's cropped up, and then I'll ask them after the event, you know, would you mind if we spent some time together uh, recording a conversation? Anyway, Daniel, yes, he does that, um, or has done that in the past as well. Um, so he uses audio, film, um, and photography. And um, I feel greatly honoured that over the last year or so we've we've become friends, mm. and um, you know that's another blessing of of lockdown, really. You know, small mercies, um, because you know, thankfully I've been um, free of COVID during that time myself, and uh, and it, so some um, wonderful things have come out of it, uh, and one of them is is getting to know Daniel a bit, um, and. We were having a discussion about, you know, why do you call yourself a documentarist, Daniel? And uh, he said, well, you know, like you, uh, photography is not enough. 
to describe it. You know, we're we're storytellers, really, um, picture makers, storytellers. That's that. You know, the story is the real um, currency here. And when I say currency, I'm you know, I'm not talking about money. I'm right, talking about right, right, right. It's the value. That's the real value. value. It's, it's going, the sort of going marrow back to value again. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. You just have the discussion with John, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um, the value of value. Yeah. Many photographers, I think, don't perhaps understand that their their main currency isn't the photographs, but the stories that go with them. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Yeah, because and it is changing. Um, photography as a medium and as a business, I think is changing. So I think there are a lot of photographers who are, who are having to sort of, uh, maybe not redefine, but reassess where their value is. What, what is their value? And, and this is going to come out wrong and I apologize. It's not meant to be pejorative at all, but it seems like it's gotten harder to be just a photographer. That's right. You're 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 dead right, um, and and I know what you mean by just a photographer. Or you know, I, I think for most photographers, they'll that 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 term just isn't enough to describe what they do. Right. Um, similarly, um, painters and sculptors, because mm-hmm. there's usually a wealth of stories behind any piece of work, and that's and really the items, whether they're photographs or sculptures or drawings, end up being a memento of the story. Their evidence that the story happened. If if we go back to the beginning of Lifeboat, if we go back to the very beginning of that project, mm-hmm. did you know that it had to be more than photographs? That there had to be that additional layer of of sort of visual or even sonic ephemera that went along with it? Not right at the start. It feels really strange for me to say that now because of who I feel I've become now, or mm-hmm. rather what the project has drawn out of me that was already there mm-hmm. waiting to be nurtured, you know, waiting to be made. So at the start, I was just going to make photographs. Um, and again, I don't mean that pejoratively to say sure. just going to make photographs. Um, my intention was quite clear that I'd make three photographs. I'd photograph the the view from every boathouse. Um, so by that, I mean the scene that lifeboat crews see when they launch a lifeboat. So where they are going to, where they are launching their lifeboat to, to go and help somebody at sea. Um, my intention with that photograph was that, and still is, um, is that when all of those photographs are put in geographical order around a gallery space and the viewer stands in the middle. It'll be as if you're looking around the entire coastline of the oh, UK and Ireland. And it's got to be brilliant to see that. It's got to be well, just... I hope so. Because <laughs> <laughs> I put a lot of effort into it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and, so and let's, a- let's be clear. For, for those of you who are not familiar with Jack's work, he's, he's not walking around with a point and shoot camera. Can, can you, I, I promise I'll never ask you to talk about gear again, but would you give people an idea of, of what you're hauling around and, and how you're hauling around this, this gear to these, uh, what's it going to be? 300 locations by the time you're done over 300, uh, uh 238, Two th- 238. Um, okay. Yeah. But there's also there are also independent lifeboat stations. Um, let me, oh gosh, where do I start? 
set Jeff, the scene Jeff for you. <laughs> and I promise I won't call you Jeff Jeffrey again. That's I'll fine. just call you Jeffrey. That'll, that's a new one, Jeff Jeffrey. <laughs> um, so in the UK and Ireland, we have uh, an amazing institution called the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Uh, it was founded in 1824, um, so nearly 200 years ago. In 2024 will be their 200th anniversary. Um, and it's an institution made up of volunteers. And that alone is incredible. So so by that, I mean that these, these are people, about 5,000 people around the UK and Ireland, who carry an emergency pager strapped to their belt. Um, and when that pager sounds, that that's a call essentially from the Coast Guard um, who require their service um, and they drop everything they're doing and they will launch a lifeboat within moments. And that lifeboat can be anything from a small, depending on the lifeboat station and the location and what's at that station, um, they may have a small uh, uh, inflatable lifeboat with an outboard motor on it. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but the biggest lifeboat that the RNLI have in service is a seven-class lifeboat and that's 42 tons, 17 metres, 3,500 horsepower. Wow. Um, and that's wow. part of a, a whole breed of all-weather lifeboats that are called all-weather lifeboats because they will go out in all weathers. Um, and they are phenomenal, Jeffrey. Phenomenal pieces of kit. Uh, is is uh, this one of the machines, that, the, the photo that you showed me last time we spoke that you took off the wall, is, is that one of the... The, the largest lifeboats? No, that's actually a medium size. That's oh a Shannon gosh. class. Yeah, that's a oh Shannon class. Yeah, that's 13 meters. Wow. Um, and still a very, very impressive uh, piece of kit as well. You know, the, the nominal speed for that for that lifeboat is 25 knots. Hmm. Um, and it's powered by, it's propelled by uh, water jets. Um, and, and that's the newest, that's the state of the art lifeboat in the RNLI fleet. So all of this, you know, and do you remember the people that were around that lifeboat? Yes, um, uh, all standing in front and on the deck. Yeah, yes, yeah. So there are twenty-seven people in that photograph, and they're volunteers. Um, apart from, I think, from memory, there'll be a full-time coxswain and a full-time mechanic, because you can't have a multi-million-pound vessel on a station and not look after it properly. Sure. You know, it, it, yeah, sure. it's a full-time job that in itself. So there are often all-weather lifeboat stations, um, a, w- at least one full-timer. Um, there who uh, is looking after the station and the vessel um and it's all paid for by voluntary contributions you know they rely is on it donations really? it's not yes, funded yeah. by the by the government no no wow. not at all it's not funded in any way by the government no um, kidding no so so for nearly 200 years we have this incredible institution um you know we're an island nation um and so much of our economy and leisure and you know, tourism um, industry re- relies on the sea. Um, so when you look at the map of 238 lifeboat stations, and you can see, you can get an idea of that on my own website, um, mm-hmm. which is lifeboatstationproject.com. When you go to the mission map, um, which is forward slash stations, um, it's, there's a, a map on there that integrates with Google and you can, and you can zoom out and you can see all the stations there, how they're dotted about. So they, they um, the most southerly ones are in the Channel Islands, um, actually very close to France, therefore, in the Channel Islands. Um, and they go all the way up to Shetland. Um, Amazing. And Look at this. Um, wow, at, I'm looking at the, it right now. Wow. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, 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 and unusually, 
Ireland as well. There are, I think there are 46 stations in Ireland. And I say unusually because it's unusual for there to be a royal institution in the Republic of Ireland. You know, the Republic of Ireland is another, it's a different country. It's not the UK. Um, and do and, they consider themselves part of the overall project or do they consider themselves kind oh, yes, of, yeah. they are, they are. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, so absolutely. And uh, I've so far photographed over 20 um, in Ireland. It sounds like from the time that you were a child, there there was some connection to the sea. Is that fair? Yeah, yes, yes, it is. Um, I can't claim to be one of those salty sea dogs, you know, who's always been at sea and that kind of thing. But I have always had... Um, Go on, the, sing the us sea- a shanty. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. <laughs> Not like the last time. <laughs> um, but I, I, I grew up on a boat um, for the first... Uh, a few years of my life as a as a baby and a toddler um and my dad was a deep sea diver on the north sea oil rigs um so i, I was born in aberdeen um which i don't know if you know this but aberdeen is uh, fondly known as the the dallas of the north um it, it's the oil center of the uk and um so that's where i was born and uh so, so the sea has always been sort of around me at some point in my life, and then yes, in, into my uh, early teens, I used to sail wayfarer dinghies and was kayaking, and um, yes, yeah, so, so I, I'm not somebody who say, say always lived and worked on boats, but they have always been around. And I was introduced to lifeboats when I was ten years old by right. my dad. You know, he, he took me to a factory to to see them being made, um, or rather, where they the new ones were just being made, or or ones waiting for repair. And that was me hooked in those moments. I'm just realizing we've gone off on a massive tangent because you asked me, how do I make my photographs? <laughs> we'll get to it. Ago. We'll get to it okay. today, okay. tomorrow. It doesn't matter. We'll get to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> was was um, there ever a temptation to, to sort of follow in your father's footsteps, uh, career-wise or vocation-wise? As a diver? Yeah. No. No. I, I've tried scuba diving um, a couple of times and I'm afraid I get really... Um, claustrophobic sort of mm. panicky a bit you know i i it doesn't suit my mindset at all i think it's one of those things where you certainly have to have the right mindset sure. I mean, my dad was in my dad was in the merchant navy as well so he's traveled the world um on um you know merchant ships uh is your is your father still alive yes yeah, yeah. he lives in new zealand yeah. um and actually over recent years um he's had a boat in his life again wow um, he has a, a um a 1960s ex-trawler um which he has as a, a beautiful um houseboat that they go away on mm. um every now and then uh yeah so yeah the, the sea is very much in his blood um and in his makeup what does he uh, think my, of the project is he do you guys talk about it has he oh yeah, yeah. No, um he's i don't think it's too much of a stretch to say um that he's he's incredibly proud of it um which i you know, and I love that he is, and he's he's um he's one of my patrons as well. Um, <laughs> of and, course, he uh, is. No, yeah, and you know he loves it. He absolutely loves it. I, I think um, when uh, people first learned of, of this idea, because I first conceived the idea in 2012 hmm. um, to visit all. Uh, then it was 237 RNLI lifeboat stations, um, and. I think people didn't disbelieve me that I was going to do it, but I set aside you know three to five years to to do that kind of project. Um, I thought that's how long it would take because I knew it would be a, a big task. 
Uh, but here we are six years later and I'm still here and I've still got another two and a half to three years worth of work to do when restrictions allow. Um, so when, when the uh, pandemic arrived, I visited my 150th lifeboat station, um, which means I have 88 to go. Um, and I managed to photograph about 30 a year. Um, and bear in mind, this is my full-time job. Right. Um, yeah, this is my full-time life. You know, job isn't even enough. To no, describe. I don't think I don't think job covers it because it's, yeah. it it is it is such an identity project. And 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 what a what an incredible joy to have a project that. And I'm making an assumption here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is is your life as you just said? But it doesn't feel like an unhealthy uh, sort of compulsion. It, it 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 still it, it from from where I'm looking and, and in talking to you the way we have, there is still such joy in doing it. It doesn't feel like a job for you, is what I'm getting at. It feels like a calling. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a you know vocation, um, and I wouldn't necessarily have described it like that when I first had the idea. But interesting. It, but but when you listen to your heart. You know, even then, when I came up with the idea, I knew this was it. I knew this was a fantastic idea, and I couldn't believe it that nobody else had come up with the idea. Because when you look at the map, and you now know what I'm doing, it's a very simple idea. Right. To go to every single R online life. Simple, but not easy. Exactly. And and actually, that that kind of brings me around a little bit to your initial question about this. Um, (laughs) Finally. Jesus. Yeah, no, oh gosh. (laughs) This this will keep happening. I'm sorry. I don't even remember. What was it? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Um, so going back to that initial point about the uh, photographs I make um, and how I do it, and then to fully answer that, the so I, d- I started describing the boathouse views, didn't I? Yes. And and then how they'd be placed around a gallery, um, so that you had the sensation of looking around the entire coastline of the UK and Ireland. Um, the other photographs I make are the crew and the coxswain. Now the coxswain is the um, the skipper, if you like. Mm-hmm. He's the one, he's the man in charge mm-hmm. um, of the boat, and that was my intention at the start. Just those three photographs. You know, I was going to be very focused not only in the nature of the project, but the you know the, the photographs that I'll be making, because I could only make three photographs because the way I'm doing it, and that's using uh, the 1851 process, wet collodion. Um, and again, for those who don't know what wet collodion is, it's an early photographic process um, that uh, involves making photographs directly onto metal or glass. Uh, and so I make mine onto glass, 12 by 10 inch glass plates. And that means that I turn up in my mobile darkroom, and we can come on to that in a minute as well. Affectionately um, known as... As Nina. There you go. There it is. N-double-E-N-A, the legendary Nina. And we can come on to why she's called Nina. Uh, yes, in please. A, in a little, what, now? <laughs> in or in, in, a, in, in a little? volume four of our conference. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, no. I can't wait, actually. This is exciting. To think it might be, to think we might chat more regularly is a, is a good prospect. As I, I I'm thrilled. Twitter. I'm already looking at calendars. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. Are there <laughs> enough in the world? <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> So you could have gone with four by five or five by seven or eight by 10, but instead you went with 12 by 10, which seems pretty massive. 
What was it about that size? What was it about 12 by 10 that seemed to fit this project? Well, when you're working with wet collodion, um, I think anybody who's like a seasoned collodionist uh, who p- could be potentially listening to this, they'll go, ha, huh, 12 by 10, that's not massive. You know, it's always <laughs> like this competition. Um, uh, you know, that people do make much bigger plates as well, but you're right. Um, five by four um, and those smaller sizes. And in fact, I, le- I learned wet collodion on a, on a smaller camera using um, smaller plates, which are kind of postcard size, you know, mm-hmm. about six inches by four inches. Mm-hmm. Um and that's a beautiful format as well. So I learned the process on the smaller camera. But when I was, then had the idea and was doing my initial tests, because the beauty of wet collodion is that you see the finished result there and then, you know, bizarrely, even though it's a process that's a hundred and, oh, it's 170 years old, isn't it? This year. This year. Uh, yeah. Happy, yeah. Happy birthday, uh, wet plate ha- collodion. Yeah. Whoever you are, Frederick Scott <laughs> Archer bloke. Right. <laughs> Um, never forgotten. <laughs> um, too soon, uh, too soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh dear. Um, oh, I've lost my thread again. Um, although the plates I was making were beautiful, um, I knew that, you know, because you, you see this result instantly. And so bizarrely, yes, this 170 year old process is almost as instant as, Modern processes, you know how people shoot a picture on, the, on their digital camera and then look at the back and then there it is. You know, within moments, you can have a, a glass plate, a beautiful glass plate uh, fixed, washed in front of your eyes. And uh, But I knew that the smaller plates weren't going to cut it in terms of a dramatic effect, if you like, mm-hmm. as a finished piece. Mm-hmm. So I knew they needed to be larger. And I started to really think about the format um because i wanted people to be able to really look at a plate and go wow that is a thing you know that is a you know and they wouldn't necessarily understand the process or know how it was made but all they would know is that they'd seen a spectacular thing happen right before their very eyes that would make them feel like they'd taken part in the work that they'd seen the work been involved at every level um, and that they were part of making an historical project, an historic project, uh, which they are. You know, that is exactly what is happening. It's a collaboration. I can't do it without them. And, and the finished result can't happen without me either. And they cram into the back of my mobile darkroom and see it all happen. And they can see this plate that has a decent size to it that you can really pour over. You know, you can really look at the details. And when you tell them, when you tell uh, the lifeboat volunteers who are looking over your shoulder just as you've just made it and you've got it in the in the wash tray. Um, you can tell them it's still, after 170 years, the highest resolution process ever invented. And they'll look more closely at all the fittings on the lifeboat and they'll see every bolt head on the lifeboat. They'll see every... And I'm not kidding about this, by the way. Like the zips on their life jackets, mm. you can see every single tooth on their life jackets, even though there may be about 50 meters distance between me and the, and the subject, you know, and then the, and the crew, you know, you can zoom in when you, when you made a high resolution scan of the plate, you can zoom into the, to that scan. Um, at, you know, like, like the photograph I showed you, uh, on the wall here in the studio and all of the detail in that plate will be perfectly rendered. Um, it's you know, really extraordinary. So when they know that you can, the 12 by 10 plate is large enough for them to, to see that. Um, and I couldn't go larger than that because I then had to really think, well, how many glass plates can I safely store in Nina? 
What size trays will I have to use? You know, the the moment you change format with right. wet plate, all of the, the other considerations, everything have to, changes. Yeah, sure, yep. sure. So, so the size of the silver tank, the quantity of of chemicals, whether it's the developer that you're pouring over the plate, um, or the amount of water that you're using to wash the plate, everything changes. And the size of the trays, you know, so that so the size of the trays affects the size of your counter that you can use. Sure. Um, in in a mobile vehicle, you know, uh, and I felt. Like 12 by 10 was the largest I could really go to because when I go to, when I go on the road, I'm on the road for about five weeks at a time, um, about three times a year. And I'm photographing about 10 lifeboat stations, maybe as many as 12 uh, on one, I call them missions, you know, on one mission. Um, you know, people again have said to me, oh, Jack, why do you call them missions? And then they see me working at what just one lifeboat station when I'm on the coast. And they see how physical it is and how involved in the concentration. And then they realize I'm going to be doing that 11 or 12 times in one trip. And I've, several times people have said to me, I understand why you call the missions now. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> to note that the clock is ticking from the time that you sensitize the plate. Mm. You've only got minutes before that has to hit the developer or it's gone. Yes? That's right. Um, once. The plate has been sensitized, as you correctly say. Uh, you are then on the clock. So really, I need to I need to have carried the wet plate to the camera, plugged it on the back of the camera, made the exposure, come back to Nina, close the door, safe light on, take the plate out of the holder, pour developer over it, pour a, a stop wash over it. You know, uh, um, about two liters of water, and fix it or within about a 10 to 15 minute window, depending on the weather. You know, if it's colder weather, you have a bit longer. If it's hot weather, you have a shorter amount of time. Because the minute the plate starts to dry, you lose it, you lose the image. Right. And you've and got, plate- in some cases, two dozen people to wrangle into the frame. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. So that's a really rigorous ritual as well that I've really honed over the years. Um, you know, basically the camera has to be set up and ready with the photograph composed. So the first thing to do, say in a crew photograph scenario, is to set the scene, you know, to make sure the composition is perfect. And 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 it starts with me briefing the lifeboat crew. Before we even go near the camera, I, I tell them what to expect and what's going to happen. That we, you know, we're about to step outside, the lifeboat's been manoeuvred into place for me. And when they see me under the dark cloth, that's not me taking the picture. I'm not, I'm not exposing anything there at all. That's me just composing it you know it's the equivalent of looking on the screen on your smartphone or mm-hmm. uh, through the viewfinder of your slr that's what it's like then and once the photograph's composed if they could possibly bear with me and just be patient while i nip back to my mobile darkroom and hand make a piece of photographic film because that's what i'm doing you know these photographs are completely handmade sure um and so i have to dash back to nina um pour um, salted collodion over the glass plate um, and then put it into the, into the silver bath for about three minutes. Um, and once it's sensitized, I can then close the door on Nina so it's completely dark and, um, you know, well, red, red light's on and I can load the plate into, into the plate holder and go back to the camera. And that process takes about six or seven minutes, something like that. You know, I've got it down to a bit of a fine art. So they only have to wait there. By the time I've done the walking between the cameras as well, between between the darkroom and the camera, maybe a maximum of about eight minutes, something like that. Um, and they know the they know the drill. Then 
um, and the wet plate is plugged onto the back of the camera and I count them down, three, two, one, and I remove the lens cap, make the exposure, remembering to take out the dark slide, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Safety tip. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then, I, I, would, I would imagine, yeah. Jack, that there has to be on their part a feeling of you're acknowledging and, and you're respecting them and what they do by, and I'm, I'm kind of butchering this, but because of the work that you're going through to document what they go through, there, there's got to feel, there, there has to be a feeling of, of respect there rather than just using a DSLR or, or even, uh, you know, a 35 millimeter or medium format film camera. There is, there is work, there's effort, there is craft, there's technique, there's skill on your part to celebrate and document the skill and, and the dedication to, to what they do on their part. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't butchered that at all. It's, um, that's exactly it. It it cuts both ways. You know, um, I think at the start in January, 2015, I was just another photographer. You know, I was yet to you or to them, to them, uh-huh. because lifeboat stations are exciting places. Right. You know, they, they, they've got fantastic kit in them. You know, the, the lifeboats are incredible. Whichever size of lifeboat you look at, you can just see it, this. This is built to do something really purposeful. Um, and this piece of kit is not going to fail at doing it either. You know, um, and I think many lifeboat stations have plenty of photographers approaching them saying can i just can we do this mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they'll 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 and this is where the phrase taking pictures i think comes into play that i i try you know sometimes i don't i don't get too fussy about it but i am quite fussy about it you won't often i don't i think hear me say i'm going to take a photo you know, with wet collodion and this and the project i'm making a photograph because it is a collaboration. And I think the phrase taking a photograph sort of speaks volumes in that kind of context, because uh, all too often in that kind of context, and say if I was doing it digitally, um, and this isn't to denigrate digital photography at all, right? I just love photography in all of its ways. What I'm talking about here is human interaction and and what actually happens on the day. Um, if If I was shooting it digitally and I said, right, everyone, if you just line up there, and you expose the shutter on a digital SLR, and then you've gone to the next station, it does feel like you've just taken something from them without perhaps there being some kind of transaction there, some kind of emotional transaction. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. these, people are, these people are volunteers, and not only are they giving so much time already to the RNLI, to this incredible charity, um, I've, I've asked them to come along, as, to come out as well, you know, and... and, and to make a photograph um and so in my mind we're making that photograph you know we're doing it together and you're quite right it kind of cuts both ways because once they see this once the scale of my endeavor became clear and they saw that i too was making something and, I, and not only making something but doing it right there on the spot in front of their eyes so they could be a part of it and that's why i really chose wet collodion because it's a you know it's a one-stop process in that there's no taking that plate away to go and do some further darkroom work that's it that's the photograph right there in front of your eyes so if ever you see that glass plate on display in a gallery 
you know that that will be the glass plate made in that location at, on that date. It's not a copy of it. It's a one-off. That, that's the one. Um, once they join the dot of that endeavor, um, then they're on side, you know. And, and now I'm in the very, very for, uh, fortunate position that many lifeboat stations write to me to say, when are you coming to us? Because we can't wait. Oh, that's great. That's and great. And isn't that, isn't that most yeah. beautiful sentiment? And the, you know, what more could a, a documentarist ask for? That, you know, the, the people to be documented are getting in touch to say, come and see us because we'd love to have you here. Um, well, and I, and I love that you take the same craft and care, regardless of whether you are photographing, uh, as you mentioned earlier, an inflatable boat or a 17-ton state-of-the-art vessel. They get the same level of dedication and craft and care from you regardless. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. And I'm, I'm at every lifeboat station or every, you know, at each town where there's a lifeboat station, I'm usually there for at least one night, often two nights. Mm. Um, so I immerse myself in the community as well for that period of time. Um, and I think people like that as well. I think that they, they like that you're living their life for at least a couple of days. Um, and, and now when I build this picture, when I build this picture, you get to see perhaps why it takes so long to make this project and why I'm only photographing 30 a year. Um, because when I, when I've photographed all of those stations, in one mission that means that i'm traveling back home with about 100 120 glass plates in the back of nina wow so 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 the the further i travel the more that's precious amazing the, the, that you set yeah. out on these missions with a hundred or more glass plates at a time yes yeah wow. yeah so then i have to come back and scan them all of course and get them on the website um so that i can start to sell prints of them because the printing is the is the income Mm-hmm. Um, you know this is all funded uh, independently um so i've worked out ways to fund this project um you know i don't receive arts grants or anything like that I, I i'm determined that this is a a project about the lifeboat volunteers for the lifeboat volunteers it's a project about people for people and here we get to a crux in all this jeffrey with that in mind and with in mind so many problems i believe with the way that people enjoy the arts these days on social media, for example, I'm determined to make a, to show that it's possible to enlighten your audience, to enlighten your crowd, that they too can and perhaps should be helping to support the work that they're entertained by. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, touch wood... <laughs> That seems to be what I'm doing. I seem to be finally making it work because I, I, I'm determined to do that because I think it's right. Um, you know, I don't think people should just be doom scrolling on their devices and uh, just being entertained by stuff. Um, you know, there needs to be, again, a, an emotional transaction there and perhaps a financial one too where they understand that um, the art that they do so love that they're seeing on their screens isn't just magic out of thin air. Right, right. Yeah, Adrian has had a, a saying that she told me years ago, and, and I've used it in several places, and I think it's absolutely true, and, and it, it, it is, if you believe in the work, be a part of the work. Yes, exactly. Exactly. 
really, really, really important, I think. And, um, and I could go many stages further, I think, in my own, you know, beliefs and things and say, I, I believe it's the duty of creators to enlighten their audiences that that should be the case. How so? Well, put it this way, it's a relatively new concept to share your work online to a ready and waiting audience um, and to get more followers, more followers, more followers. Um, and we've fallen into this trap even more than ever of just putting your work out there because you want it to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, I feel like I'm essentially saying by um, by by saying something like it's the duty of creators to enlighten their audiences. It's like to put the brakes on that a bit and say, do you know, I will keep entertaining you in a certain way, free of charge, but this work isn't magicked out of thin air. And whenever I'm saying to you, please buy prints or please buy a book or please buy postcards or whatever it happens to be, please bear attention to that. Um, and then I've gone a step further and. Um, after using Patreon for uh, intensively for three years, uh, I've now stepped away from Patreon and, and I'm migrating my patrons across to an independent membership platform that I've built within my own website. Um, and so a lot of my content, a lot of my blog posts and audio recordings and stories are behind a paywall. Um, and I've stuck to my guns on that. You know, somebody once told me on Facebook when I was still on Facebook, it's a con making us pay for it. Um, and that really highlighted everything I needed to know in that right. moment that I was actually doing the right thing. Uh, because we, I, I worked out how to respond to that because I always try and be kind, uh, when I'm speaking online, um, particularly to people who are following the project because they're not coming from a position of, you know, even that, that comment was a bit unkind from that person's point of view they weren't actually really thinking it through and it kind of highlighted exactly the situation that we got into that people are used to being entertained free of charge. Um, and, and I said something along the lines of, well, do you know, to listen to that audio recording that I was talking about in those moments, I didn't see you standing beside me at the ferry terminal to pay the 400 pound bill to get me and Nina across the Irish sea to Ireland to make that audio recording. You know, how do you think this money appears? Right. I, I'm not I'm not a millionaire. I, yeah, I print photos, this, not this money. Is, <laughs> yeah, this isn't a vanity project. Right. Um, so where's the con? Is it actually ra- rather, is it a con that you've got used to being entertained free of charge? Right. Well, and I, I wonder with things moving yeah. so far now towards subscription models, everything is a subscription yes. model now. Yes. Um I I would imagine that that has or may start to work in your favor if it hasn't already because you you are effectively creating a niche network of of programming of content of of uh multiple types of of media for people to enjoy and I, so I I would imagine that a membership platform for something like this project is is kind of a no-brainer and i i don't know but i hope that it that it is working the way you expected it to be oh yes and more so um i was stunned when i 
um, started pay- using Patreon in 2017, uh, how many people uh, immediately jumped onto that. And that struck a chord with me um, with something that Amanda Palmer had said. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, have we discussed Amanda Palmer before, Jeffrey? Do you, yeah, last time we yes. talked. Yeah. Um, so, Amanda, you know, again, for those who don't know, Amanda Palmer is a prolific um, creator, a musician, performer, um, and she's quite well known for creating at the time, I don't know if it's still true, but the most successful Kickstarter ever, in that she raised $1.2 million, I think, to uh, fund her then next album. And so she became famous as a, as a pioneer, as a trailblazer in the crowdfunding arena, not only to prove that, you know, you could have your followers, your your crowd um contribute to the work that you're making, but also that you can shake up a whole industry. I mean, that made the music industry sit up right. <laughs> and pay attention right, right, when they right. saw an individual artist, um, you know, you know uh, plowing her own furrow. And uh, she said in her book, The Art of Asking, you're not telling your crowd to support you. You're letting them support you. You're giving them a way to let them support you because they want to support you. If only they're, no, if only they're shown how. Um, and so when you do just put material out there on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, because you think that's what you have to do, um, and you're not simultaneously saying to people, and if you like this, you can support me in these ways, you'll be amazed at what happens when you let people support you, you know, when you offer right. people ways to, that allow them to jump on board. Um, I should and, read that book, by the way, because yes, I, I, have, yeah. I have long had trouble with the ask it's it's yes. one of the areas that i stumble the most in in asking for help for support for mm-hmm. you know patronage as it were yes um and it you know it is tricky and you do have to get it right but that book was so useful to me um right at the start of my crowdfunding career so you know up until that point you know we already discussed that i I photographed my first station in January 2015. Um, and so the idea was fully, the project was fully in motion with regard to logistics, you know, because I was having the boxes made to carry my glass plates. I was having the glass cut and I was having chemicals prepared and all that kind of thing. Um, in 2014, you know, that's when the when the project really started to get underway. It was in the second half of 2014. Um, and at that time, my idea was to be really purist, you know, like, so many so many of us you know i describe myself as a photographer then um you know have this pure idea that will just sell beautiful prints and that'll be it (laughs) yes exactly and it just doesn't work that way it just doesn't work that way and i'm i'm i'll tell you one thing that i am really proud of and i I know i've said that i'm proud of myself a couple of times now i want you to be aware that i i really hope this didn't come across as something being as being conceited but i am i i am proud of the things that i've achieved for the project because they they illustrate things are possible yes so that my print sales uh they fund the entire project they they pay for the costs of the project okay which is massively encouraging well i hope it is that's why i'm saying it to to you um because i i hope that people can take something from that that this is possible and i want to be clear too at this point you know we hear words like patreon and crowdfunding if your listeners don't know already there are no shortcuts patreon 
any mechanism. They're just tools. What you will have to do, whatever tool you use, is you will have to work very, very hard and be very, very focused and give to it utterly wholeheartedly. You know, there are no shortcuts with this. You can't just try Patreon for a month and say it didn't work. Right. For example, um, you have to throw yourself into it and decide, yes, I am doing this. And actually that ties into a bit of your discussion with John, doesn't it? Because um, I think, well, I I listened back to it again and again, the particular question, because I wanted to get it right when I quoted you on Twitter, the question you asked, which was something along the lines of, why do people, why do they not want to try or why, why, what, what was your wording? It's like, why not they, try they, something new if what, you're, yes. what you keep doing doesn't work? You're, you you yes. keep trying the, sa- the same thing the same way and it doesn't work, yes. yet you're reluctant to say, well, I'm going to do it differently. Yes. And yes. John, as you know, John is the king of trying different models. I mean, he, he has no emotional connection to the business side of art whatsoever. And, and mm-hmm. I am fascinated and... and intrigued by that because i'm not there yet i the 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 physical or the 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 sort of monetary side of art for me is still inexorably linked to the existential side of the art yes well i I heard you saying that too and and i completely empathize with that you know i um and i wanted to say to you actually as because you weren't having the discussion with me when you were saying that, but I, I felt like I wanted to say to you that, I, and I didn't know if it would be a consolation of any kind, but I feel very aware that um, affirmation has been my oxygen. Um, you know, I, I I won't deny to anybody that I like to receive likes and comments. The, the, the best thing that I, the, the, the thing I most enjoy about making the work is the interaction and the engagement. For me, that's the affirmation. And I, and I love it when people receive a print in the post and they, they write to me and say, oh, my goodness, I, I knew it would be good, but I had no idea it would be that good or mm. something like that, too. Yeah. That's the box ticked for me right there, you know, um, and, and that, that's one of the millions of things that helps to keep me going. Um, and if people don't respond to something or don't buy something or that I'm working very hard on this side of my character, but. I I completely empathise with you that that notion of they didn't respond to that they didn't buy that they don't like me you know but I think I'm I think I'm actually getting past that um, quite well these days uh, because I'm really work it is it is quite un, unhealthy particularly when um, working life on the lifeboat station project is so intense you know if you keep living by that kind of mantra or that kind of that way of being and you aren't getting what you needed, you'll soon just end up being destroyed right, <laughs> emotionally, right, right, right. you know? Um, so, and I think actually was what sorted that out for me is that I feel utterly confident that I am doing a good thing, no matter what anybody else thinks. I know those interactions I've had at the lifeboat stations with people. I know it's been special. Um, and I, I know in my heart of hearts it's special. And what I'm learning and, and have been adjusting to is that is utterly good enough. Mm-hmm. Anything else is just the icing on the cake, you know. So if I get lovely tweets or um, comments on my on my website or whatever, anything else is just the icing on the cake. Right. Um, they're, they're not something that I'm relying on. Um, well, and, and it sounds like, and you you shared one with me. I don't know if you if you feel like you can talk about the experience with Ian. 
but that experience of of having I would call it a breakthrough moment with someone that that the guard was down and there was a, a very real very authentic very deep connection with another human being that came out of this project that you would never have experienced otherwise Absolutely you you're referring to Ian Sheridan the yes. the Hoth lifeboat mechanic um yep. Yes, that was extraordinary. And that was a turning point for me on the project. And that, yes, that made me, as if I didn't know it already, you know, in case I didn't know it already, that made me really realise that I was doing something special there and, and tapping into something special. And it, there was a special experience for not only for me, but the lifeboat crews themselves, you know, in terms of realising what, again, as if they need to remind you how special it is, what they do. But it, it, it was a turning point. Um, you know, I, you might remember that I, I mentioned to you that uh, Ian spoke for a good 45 minutes or so. Right. Um, telling me what he wanted to tell me. And then I just had it in the back of my head that I wanted to ask him a question, but I just let him speak, you know, because that's the, a fundamental social grace, I think, just to let people say what they want to say. You know, there's a fantastic um, saying that I heard last year from a, a, a really excellent photographer called Craig Easton. Um, who's made a series called Fisherman, um, sorry, Fisherman, Fisherwomen uh, here in, uh, in the UK. Um, he said, well, what was the exact wording? He said, you know what you need? A good listening to. Ah, that's great. That's great. And that's exactly my approach with the audio recordings. You know, yeah. I, I don't just go in there with a bunch of questions. We just get much like we're doing today. We get a conversation going, mm-hmm. and 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 I listen to the people because they have clearly have a story they want to to tell. But anyway, yeah. So I, uh, Ian spoke to me for a good forty five, fifty minutes solid, and I asked him that question, and and the whole tone and nature of the conversation changed and it took me by surprise. And he and I realised that was a privileged moment there. I really, you know, I was in a moment of feeling truly honoured to be next to a man who not only had been through those things, but was willing to impart them to me and express his emotions about those things. And you know, to be more specific, it's relating to a, a particularly brutal rescue um, that he'd undertaken with the Hoth lifeboat crew in, our, in Ireland. Um, and, uh, you know, afterwards... Or just towards the end of the recording, he he says, "I'm really sorry about that, Jack." You know, he's referring to to releasing all those emotions, right? Right. And I said, "Don't be sorry, Ian." Oh no! To, yeah, I mean, you just want to reach across and give him a hug. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. okay. Yes, yeah. You know? um, but that's and, that's it. And you you mentioned that last time we were talking is that this idea of creating space is and allowing people to be seen and heard is equal to the task of making the pictures that you make. Exactly. You, you know, you, you're, forget the idea that you're a photographer. Forget the idea that you're a documentarist. You are a people person. Mm-hmm. That's what you are. You know, if you are, if you say you're a sound recordist, okay, yeah, you record sound. You carry a field recorder. Okay, Excellent. And a microphone, of course, hopefully plugged into it. Um, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you're a photographer, you can use a camera. Of course you can. That's what you do. You know, you wouldn't 
I don't know, I'd go to an office worker and say, yeah, they wouldn't, you'd, you'd expect that they can operate a computer um, or type a letter or whatever. You know, so get past that. Right, you're a photographer. Okay, okay. What else have you got? What's, what's the bit that's unashamedly you that you're going to bring to the party here? And I think when you're telling and sharing special stories, you can only access those stories from the people who hold them. You know, it's like a, a treasure trove. It's like, you know, and you need a key to open that lock to be allowed to listen to those wonderful stories that are handed down through the generations. You have to be a people person. There's no two ways about it. You are not going to get those stories by being a photographer or by being a sound recordist (laughs) or by being a filmmaker. Right. When when did the, because it sounds like there, there have been a number of really beautiful sort of both professional and personal milestones that this project has given you. When, when did the switch flip from, from photographer to documentarist? When, when, when were you comfortable making that an identity, I guess? Well, that only came, believe it or not, that only came last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, the exploration of it started a couple of years ago on Patreon. I wrote a Patreon-only post um, that was exploring the idea of what I am actually. You know, what what do I do? Photography doesn't seem enough. And I landed on the phrase of the, the word storyteller. And even that, I have to say, even though I wrote it at the time, you know, to, the, to my mind, this was a discussion with my patrons. Um, and this is one of the kind of Patreon-only um, posts, you know, the, the, this part of that mechanism with Patreon or now with my own membership platform uh, where you can have posts behind a paywall, which means that you are just uh, talking to this special community of people um, who are rooting for you. Um, And and you can have these kind of more private discussions, if you like, even though it's still with a couple of hundred people. Um, And so I'd started to explore the idea a while back. I started to feel like I, I was I was really holding back when I was describing myself on social media or in my in my blog posts or whatever or in press interviews as a photographer. You know, people say, "So here's photographer Jack Lowe," and it almost went with wince because I, I think I'm not that, that's not enough, um, and it doesn't fit the bill. You know, um, and it wasn't until I met Daniel and started to explore. Uh, so you know, Daniel Meadows and started to explore Daniel Meadows' work more, and I noticed on his profile. Um, on Instagram or on his website, uh, he said something like, you know, I'm a documentarist who blah, blah, blah. I mm-hmm. thought, documentarist. And I looked it up and I thought, do you know, that's the word there. And um, as part of my discussions with Daniel Lowe's, I said, you know, would you mind if I start using that word? Because I haven't seen it anywhere else apart from on your website. He said, no, oh, don't be silly. It's not my word. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. he, he said, you know, it's, it's a family, a family of documentarists, uh, people who who use whichever medium is suited to the task in hand. And, and, and it sounds like you're a documentarist too, Jack. So describe yourself as a documentarist. That had to it, mean it, a lot coming from him. To yes, have that yeah, sort of it, blessing from him, yeah? Well, the one, th- you know, <laughs> I'd be accused of being a, in, in the most kind of um, uh, 
convivial way a, a Daniel Meadows fanboy um <laughs> you know and I and I am a big fan and I'll tell you why there's there's something right at the root of it I when I started the project and was coming up with this madcap idea to to do this project in this certain way um I hadn't seen anybody else doing something like it you know I, I felt like I was on my own with it I, I felt like an outsider making up my own rules and to be a bit too brutal about it and unkind to myself. I'd even go as far as thinking there's that silly Jack Lowe with his silly vehicle doing his silly idea that no one else does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and, although I didn't realize that you went all in on Nina and, and everything from the start, I guess I, yes, I, yeah. I was under the impression that that was more of an evolution. So even no, more no, respect Nina. for saying, Nope, I'm going to do it this way and I need this to do it. And, and I'm yeah. all in. Yeah, that's 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 how it happened. Wow. As you described in that last sentence there. Yeah. Wow. Um and that was um out of inspiration from a couple of sources, um, which I'll come on to in a moment. And wearing your but, Team Daniel t shirt as you drive down the road. Uh, well, you see, I didn't know about <laughs> Daniel then. I, I didn't I met Daniel um <laughs> well, that's what I do now. <laughs> um, uh, but when I when we had started these conversations with Daniel, and when I heard a talk by Daniel on on good old Zoom um in, in lockdown. It made me very, very emotional. I, I got actually, I had to turn my video off because I actually started to get watery eyed. Did you really? Uh, wow. Yeah, because in those moments, by knowing more about Daniel and hearing him speak about his work, I understood that I was allowed to do what I'm, what I do. It, he he made he made it allowed mm. he, because he did this. In, he did it in 1974. And I didn't really know about it then. I didn't know the extent of what he did. But there's so many similarities by the, by the, in the ways that we work and the way we see the world and interact with the people that we um, stumble across or muster into a photograph or an audio recording or whatever it happens to be. Um, it was a huge relief to me because I realised that what I was doing actually was allowed. And even though lots of people have said to me, you can't do it like that, what are you thinking, you know, and I had to just sort of bat it off and think, well, I am doing it. I'm all in. So I can't change my mind now. Right. Um, to know in those moments that I was allowed to, it really has given me renewed vigor for when restrictions allow me to travel again and I can pick and I can, you know, start making new work again. Right. Uh, Interesting that years yeah. later, you, you, you found almost the permission that you mm. needed to take a different kind of look at how, how this, this project was evolving. Yes. Yeah. From, from Daniel, um, I mean. Yeah. And it, you know, the, the photography world is a very specific world, I think. Um, you hear people saying so often, I'm a landscape photographer or I'm a portrait photographer. I'm a fine art photographer. What is this? Why, why aren't you just a photographer? Why, why do people have to pigeon themselves in, pigeonhole themselves in certain ways, you know? Um, and, you know, I only use photography in this way because it's for the project. I, I'm not somebody outside of that context who will just make wet plates for fun. I'm not a wet plater. I'm a documentarist using wet collodion for very specific reasons because it ticks so many boxes for telling this particular story. Um, and to be, to to finally realise that I was allowed to do that, uh, you know, and I, I find it a little bit hard describing it, I guess, because of course I'm allowed to do it because I'm a I'm a grown up, 
Um, <laughs> sort I can of. drive. <laughs> Is it a kind of, yes. Um, but when you have seen somebody else do it, or it, he wasn't using wet collodion, but he right. was using photography, analog photography and audio recording back in the 70s and beyond to tell these wonderful stories, it, it, it was a hu- somehow a huge relief to me and a weight off because it's like a reference point. It's something I can point back to and say to anybody who questioned me in the future, say, well, look, actually, look at what happened back then. Right. So, you know, I, I'll just carry on. Thanks very much. I have to say, you know, in all honesty, I don't get that anywhere near so much these days because people really understand what I'm doing now. And um, somebody, uh, well, sorry, it wasn't just somebody. It was a, um, somebody who's become a friend and he's a patron, a supporter of the project, said on Twitter, uh, a few weeks back, I don't know about anybody else, but I started following and supporting the Lifeboat Station project because I saw a guy photographing lifeboats and lifeboat crews, and I'm a lifeboat volunteer. But now, actually, my main reason for following the Lifeboat Station project is for inspiration and hope, um, mm. and and uh, you know, more for emotional reasons. And I just thought that was incredible. I'd what a what a an accolade, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, we're, it, the, the, it's taken on a life beyond you in addition to what you bring to it it's yeah it's fascinating and the fact that you're recording audio and sharing stories and sharing photographs you're you're allowing i was thinking about this the other day you're allowing people to meet the project where they are yes if if you are a visual person you can appreciate and enjoy the work that you do if you're an audio podcast interview documentary listening to type of person you can still enjoy the work that you're doing without the visuals there is still there is still value there creative value emotional value etc and I, i i i think it's terrific because it also allows you in the future to tailor different kinds of offerings that you can you know, you can, you can release different types of, uh, or different aspects of the work. Um, you can do themes, you can do a collection of stories. You, it just, there is so much there that I think, especially once the project is finished and you can see the thing in its, and its sort of wholeness, um, all sorts of opportunities are going to open up that, that you're not even aware of yet. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, absolutely beautiful thing that i've learned to utterly release myself to um i didn't know i'd be here speaking to a lovely guy in washington dc you know um about Wait, are, what are, are you <laughs> oh yeah um he's after you <laughs> sorry uh, <frick. laughs> all right well, well have I, fun with I your little glass plates <laughs> Bye. Are you back? Um. <laughs> I I knew I had to talk to you. Can I say that? I knew I had to talk to you. Did you? From the first photograph. I mean, my family history is working class, is blue collar, it's railroad men. So so the the idea of of working life and just the whole sort of ethos of of this project spoke to me. And I and then when we when we talked. You know what was what should have been a little fifteen minute hello how are you I mean geez I think we talked for two hours yeah it was, it was a good two hours yeah so there there's so much and and I think this I hope uh, that this will be the first of 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 many that we kind of dive into because we still really haven't 
<laughs> you still really haven't talked about it. <laughs> any questions yet? <laughs> um, I do have yeah, Steve Zisu in my notes here from, yes. from our first conversation, and I have no idea why. I just remember there was something significant. I had to write that down. You said something, and I don't know if you remember yeah. what that was re- referring to. I do, to yeah, I do. Yeah, right. I do. And actually, it's um, we, we did start to touch on it just a fraction earlier. And actually, did, have you written down Carl Sagan as well? You said... Um, I did. I have Carl yeah. Sagan written down in pale blue dot right next to it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you said that we should speak about Carl Sagan next time we talk. Right. Um, and uh, so I don't know if that'll be in this conversation or in three conversations time, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh well let's just for sorry i know i'm not the host here but let's just no um, please the, the keys let's are just yours wind it back a minute let's just wind it back a minute jeffrey so uh <laughs> um we were talking about how the the project had evolved right and, and that's what I, I like to kind of stress to anybody as well who, who who is thinking about starting on a particular journey you know just start taking those steps and and just release yourself to the fact that Wonderful things will happen. I heard Anthony Hopkins say an amazing thing on Twitter as well, just before Christmas. He he put a video message out and he said, one of the things he said was, be bold and amazing forces will come to your aid. What a great quote. I'm moved all over again just thinking about him saying that. I'll have to find it. I'll find it and I'll... uh, I'll have have made it as a note on my... um, There we are. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I just think that's worth remembering for anybody, not just creators, anybody in life at the moment. Just keep going. Just keep taking those small steps. And it's incredible. You know, you'll because here I am when I've nearly lost my family home on more than one occasion in um in those earlier days of the project. Uh, I'm still here six years later at times. And I just thought I, I wouldn't be. And I just kept taking those steps. Just keep moving forward. Keep moving forward and stop analysing things that were way in the past or why has this happened, why has that happened. Just keep moving forward. You know, you've got your goal in mind. Set your goal. Neil Gaiman referred to it as the mountain. Keep moving towards the mountain. And before you know it, that you'll be in the foothills and then you'll be on the, on the side of the mountain and then you'll be at the peak. Just keep moving forward. And I thought Anthony Hopkins quote there, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid is just sums it up. Um, and that's what I'm, that's what I feel like I'm doing. You know, I'm just being unashamedly me these days. Um, and you, you couldn't possibly have seen where this project has gone in the past five years. There's, I, no. I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't see where you could have predicted this in any way, shape or form. No, I, I, I really was in my mind, a photographer trying something new, um, to, um, change the formula in my own life because the, the previous formula wasn't working for me, um, which was one of printmaking and retouching. I've been a printmaker and, uh, you know, a digital printmaker and retoucher to other photographers and ad agencies and design groups for 12 years and found myself stuck in front of computers to the small hours. And, you know, that was another waking moment thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? You know, where's my photography gone? Why am I working on everybody else's photography? (laughs) Um, 
Uh, and one of my simple ambitions was that my print table here in the studio would be covered with my own photography, not with the photography of other, pe- other, of other people. Um, and that's exactly what then happened. But um, yeah, it was so simple at the start that I was a photographer changing the formula, trying something that I knew would be special and was a great idea. But I, as you say, I had no idea that it would, that it would become what it has become. Um, and there have been various moments on the journey where I thought, you know, if it all ended today and I just had that, like um, the front cover of the Independent Weekend magazine, mm-hmm. um, you know, to see my, one of my portraits on the front cover of the Independent Weekend magazine and to see the feedback on online that the Independent received and some of the things that they they said they forwarded to me, like this is back to the golden age of photography. Congratulations. I mean... Wow. Yeah, job done. <laughs> that was a job done. That was a, a moment for yeah. me. It really was. Um to give a talk at, at the Apple store in Covent Garden in the heart of London about the project. And because they love the simple fact that I only have two cameras, I have my nineteen oh five glass plate camera and my iPhone. That's all I use. <laughs> um so they, they love that I was using the, the iPhone to kind of close the loop on history, you know, and um to, to close the circle. Um and that's all I all I used to tell the story. Um, obviously, apart from my my sound recording equipment, but you know, photographically, um, that's what I use. And um, and then more recently, on the one hundred and forty ninth station, which is Plymouth, um, when I arrived at the station, you know, you never sometimes quite know what kind of reception you're going to get because you know I always go in as a zero. I think we may discuss this before as well. You know? mm-hmm. I learned that from Commander Hadfield of the International Space Station. Go in as a zero. You know, these are communities that have been often been built up over decades, sometimes generations. You know, the the Cocking family, for example, have been at St. Ives Lifeboat Station for 180 years. Wow, the same family. Um, yeah. Just and generations what, of lifeboat volunteers. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Um and when you, when I go into that kind of a lifeboat station, that kind of scenario, I'm nothing. I'm a, I'm a blip on the radar. That's all I am at that in those moments, you know. So when I went in as a zero at my 149th station, Plymouth, um, back in March last year, the coxswain there, Dave Milford, is very famous on the network. He's been on the lifeboat for some 30 years or so, and when I walked through the door. And our eyes met. It's just one of those moments where you just knew you were going to get along. You know, you, you just knew by the look in, the, in, in each other's eyes. And he said to me, he said, I'm, I'm glad you made it, Jack. I said, what do you mean? Glad I made it. I, this has been planned for weeks, this trip. He said, no, I'm glad you made it before my retirement. I retire in October. And I've been watching your journey for over five years now. And I was praying. No kidding. I was praying that you'd come here before I retired. Because for me, wow. that would be the icing on the cake. And I said, really? I said, well, why didn't you get in touch just to make sure that I definitely was coming then? <laughs> you yeah, know, to yeah. make sure, you know, um, he said, oh, I didn't know I could do that. I said, well, I said, so what? So it's pure chance that I'm here before you retire? He said, yeah. He said, when, you, when the email came through to say that you'd like to come to the station, um, he said, I was clapping my hands. Wow. Uh, because I was just so over the moon that um, it coincided with my, the year of my retirement. Unbelievable. And um, so then the pressure was on, of course, yeah, Jeffrey, right. you know. Don't screw up, like, Jack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and when I made his portrait, you know, I, I really wanted to get it right. I really, really wanted to get it right. 
for him and for me. And for those moments when he said, you know, that he, it would be the icing on the cake and made the portrait. I, and I know I'm saying it myself, but it was an absolute corker. It was, oh God. You know, as we were look, standing in the back of Nina, I just poured the fixer over the plate. And at that moment, you see the image come to life before your eyes, you know, in about 10 seconds. And is he, is he with you at this point? Yeah. So yeah. he's standing beside me yeah. and I had, um, a patron of mine, Andy, actually it was the guy who I referred to earlier, who said that he used to follow the project because I photographed lifeboats, mm-hmm. but now photographs it for motivation and inspiration. He'd come to see me because uh, he was in the area. Oh, so he and was so there he, too. Oh, wow. So he was there. So it's just the three of us in the back of Nina. Um, And I pulled the fixer over the plate and we saw the image come up and we were looking at it and I was just so pleased, you know, i You've got an idea now of the variable, variables that come into play. I'll try and get it right first time, this completely handmade photograph. you know. And I'm not using a, a light meter, by the way. I don't, we haven't touched on that yet. You know, There's no light meter. I, I, From experience and feeling the environment and looking at the environment, I make a judgment call on the exposure. Um, it really is completely handmade and completely instinctively made. And so in his eyes, he'd seen this magic happen and he'd seen it happen for the first time having seen it on the on, on social media for years um there it was in the flesh for him and he he got a little bit emotional and said i want to tell you something jack i said all right what's that you know because we'd had a a few beers the night before and we kind of got, got, to, got to know each other and i was like oh god what's he gonna what's he gonna tell me now um and, and you got a picture this quite Potentially, you know, gruff-looking, traditional coxswain, tattooed forearms, great big long white beard, the cap, everything. Proper, full-on coxswain of a lifeboat, you know, just as you'd imagine that coxswain to be. And he said, I'm looking at that portrait, and I can't believe what I've just seen. I I can't believe what you have just done for us at this station and what you've done for me. He said, then there are three people in my life. You know, when I go to my rocking chair and tell my rocking, rocking chair stories in, in my retirement, he said, there are three people in my life that will be top of my rocking chair story list. Do you want to know who they are? I said, yes. Yes, please do. That'd be great. <laughs> you wouldn't mind. Yeah. And he said, number one, it's the queen. I said, oh, right. It's a strong start. Yeah. Strong, yeah. strong start. And he described about how that was a monumental moment for him. You know, he's, he, that he is a royalist and that he just loves the monarchy and loves the queen and he always wants to meet the queen and when he was invited to Buckingham Palace to meet the queen that was a, an extraordinary moment for him that he'll never forget the second person was the was finding out and meeting the brother he never knew he had oh wow yeah wow and then how wait yes. how, how, sidestep that a little bit was he an adult when he met him yes yeah wow I think it, I, I think it was relatively recently yeah no kidding mm. And that he, he described how, what a special moment that was. And then the third person was me. Unbelievable. And, you know, I mean, how, I, how I, do you I, respond I, I won't to deny that? Jeffrey, I've, well, I'm feeling a bit watery eyed now, actually, re- re- telling the story because it feels like another world, of course, because it is before all this, it's before life changed. And um, I was dumbfounded. And I said, well, that's incredible. Uh, Dave, and, and you know, I've got to tell you, it's one of those moments that if the project ended now, at least I'd, I'd have that. I said, and I, did, I just, I, just as I described to you a few moments ago, Jeffrey, that um, 
you know, there have been these pinprick moments, these miles, these these stamps on the timeline that if mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'll take that, I'll take that, and that I don't care if it ends now. I have nevertheless achieved that. And then for a seasoned coxswain who's gone through so much, who's gone through so much at sea, you know, these rescues they do are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. For him to tell me that was just phenomenal. And to, that to someone he's known for 48 hours. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And, um, you know, for me, those are my awards. So many times I see on people's profiles, award-winning photographer. Nearly every profile says award-winning. Um, I, I only have one award for the project, um, which is when the Maritime Foundation came to me and said, you've been nominated for this. Like, oh, thank you. It wasn't something I had to enter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who preceded me at the Black Tie uh, dinner event in London um, was Sir David Attenborough winning a Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow, you know, yeah, heard of there, him. There, <laughs> yes, and then there I was receiving this award from the first Sea Lord of the Royal Navy for wow. the Lifeboat Station Project. Wow. Um, Which you had no idea that you were even nominated for no, before I, they contacted you. No, wow. no. Wow. I found out on Twitter because they, they, they announced the shortlist on Twitter. And um, so beyond that, those are my awards. Those conversations one-on-one in the back of my darkroom with people, you know, the effect it's had, the um, how it's given people special memories. And I've got so many stories like that, Jeffrey, and, and they... My point being, not just to blow smoke, <laughs> I promise you, I know. I'm, I, I, what I'm trying to do is to illustrate what happens when you're bold and you just start taking those steps. And as Anthony Hopkins said, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. You know, those things wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have had the conviction just to go, do you know what? Why not? Why not have this simple, bold idea and just start to execute it in the best way that I can work out how to do it? And that's how all the rest of it has stemmed. And, and you're quite right. They wouldn't have happened if I, you know, I, I couldn't have ever predicted them happening. And the only way that they've happened is by taking those initial steps. And on a level, that's what I really hope. I really hope all of it is some kind of impetus or inspiration or motivation to other creators who are perhaps struggling, trying to work out what to do. Um, I hope it helps in some way as evidence, as an illustration that these things can happen. And, you know, I'm not saying it's easy now. It's still hard day to day as a creator. I still have to think on my feet every hour of every day as to how, as to, how to move the project forward. You know, if that stems from getting it wrong when I'm, getting distracted by talking about Elon Musk or realigning myself the very next day and suddenly cooking up a lovely, you know, a lovely bit of engagement online and everything's back on track. You know, always having to think it's never easy. And I'm, and the income I make these days is enough to pay the bills and help me survive through a pandemic. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm so happy with how it's turned out. Let's put it that way. I think this is a terrific place to stop part one of this two-part conversation with Jack Lowe. If you'd like to learn more about Jack's Lifeboat Station project, head over to lifeboatstationproject.com. And if you'd like to support the project, he has a number of ways you can do just that, including prints from the project, 
and a mug that features a terrific cutaway drawing of Jack's mobile darkroom, Nina. You can also connect with him on Twitter at Project Lifeboat. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything wherever you listen to podcasts to get every episode of every show I produce in a single feed. You can connect with me on my website at jeffreysedoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. Or on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. If you've got questions or feedback, you can email me at talkback at jeffreysedoris.com. I'll be back next week with part two of this conversation with Jack Lowe, and I hope you'll join me. Until then, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you on the next one. <laughs>